0: This is season eight of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast.
1: I'm D.L. Mayfield.
0: I'm Crispin Mayfield.
1: And this season we're talking about the thorniest, maybe horniest subject we've ever done, Christian romance. Are you ready, Crispin?
0: I don't think I am, but here we go.
1: Welcome everybody to today's episode, I don't remember what number it is, but we're here to talk about Christian romance and we're back on our BS about redeeming love today. Now don't click away because this is going to be some new stuff and some really good stuff because I interview uh, Debbie Abraham, who you're going to, everybody's going to love listening to her because she's Mm -hmm. amazing. And can I say something really quick, Crispin? Yes. So one of the reasons why I didn't actually want to do a season on Christian romance is because I knew we'd have to touch on purity culture. Like, I can't just reread the romance books I read in my youth and then talk about it. Like, it has to be more than that. Uh And I just felt so insecure because I'm like, there are people doing this work and doing a really good job. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. Part of that's because of people like Debbie. Like Debbie mm-hmm. has this amazing podcast
0: mm-hmm. that she's
1: been doing for a long time um, about purity culture. And it's, it's called Where Do We Go From Here? So it's literally about deconstructing and reconstructing
0: mm-hmm. some of
1: this stuff. So here's how we're dealing with it we are just interviewing the smart people that have been doing this work
0: i think that's like been the mo of our podcast anyway right it's like let's find out who we should be talking to yeah because i was like
1: man i just i don't want to people have been doing this work mm-hmm. and we just appreciate that yeah. so yeah here we go and
0: debbie is so lovely
1: and debbie is amazing
0: later this summer actually i'm gonna co-host one of her episodes with her she asked me to do that <gasps>
1: crossover Um, episode uh so yeah
0: I'll let y'all know when that goes up
1: yeah I'm not offended at all that she asked you and not me to co-host that's (laughs) totally cool with me (laughs) coming from the
0: person that just said I do not want to talk about purity culture exactly you know
1: okay so we're talking about redeeming love again today I recorded this interview with Debbie a few months ago this was right before the redeeming love Actually, right when the Redeeming Love movie came out.
0: Uh-huh. She's s- located in Australia, so I think it hadn't come out there yet.
1: Right. Yeah, because Australia, it's like all they have there is Bluey and a few really cool Christian activists. That's like what Australia is in my mind. Also, I mean, they do have Lego Masters Australia.
0: Uh-huh. That's cool. Right. Yeah.
1: Um, should we move to Australia?
0: Uh, you always talk about, I thought we were moving to Ireland or Canada.
1: We could can do any of it. I'm really sick of guns, so... Anywho, um, but just for the listeners, I thought I would really quickly read a very short synopsis of Redeeming Love, the novel, and the movie, I guess, because it's all kind of like conflated now in the cultural imagination. But the book has sold millions and millions of copies. It's extremely important because it kicked off a very specific genre of Christian fiction, which involves like biblical retelling of stories that – then gets people kind of enmeshed with, you know, how they interpret the Bible. So anyways, here's the synopsis. Um, so, Redeeming Love is a powerful and contemporary retelling of the biblical book of Hosea set against the romantic backdrop of the California Gold Rush of 1850. Angel expects only pain from those around her. Sold into prostitution as a child, Angel survives with hatred towards herself and the men that use her. She meets Michael Hosea, a farmer who believes God wants Angel to be his wife. Dire circumstances force Angel to accept his proposal which actually means she was unconscious. Um, But when Michael defies her bitter expectations, her frozen heart begins to thaw. As Angel encounters a love unlike anything she ever experienced, feelings of unworthiness and shame cause her to run from a life she doesn't think she deserves. As Michael sets out to find her, Angel discovers there is no brokenness that love can't
0: heal. For a minute there, I was like, oh my gosh, they're going to say there was no brokenness in the first place? No, they didn't.
1: So, Crispin, (laughs) I tried to read the book for this podcast, and I... I had to tap out, but I tapped out like 300 pages in. Mm -hmm. So like a good two thirds of it I read.
0: And you had to, like, it was messing you up.
1: It was messing me up. Kristen can attest to that. And then you saw the movie. Mm -hmm. And when you came back from watching the movie, you were like, that wasn't so bad. Like, it's I don't really know why it's a romantic movie, though, because it's really a movie about childhood trauma. And I was like, Kristen, I love you. But that is literally not how anybody reads it. You know what yes. I mean? You were right. just like fascinated by it as a right. a movie showing what childhood trauma can do to
0: you. Mm-hmm. Right? right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so
1: can you get back in that headspace? How yeah. are you when yeah, you might I saw the movie?
0: <laughs> it is really funny because, yeah, I saw like some Christian influencers saying like, this is a great date night movie. And I was like, I can't imagine anything like less romantic than, you know. Okay,
1: trigger warnings. But Redeeming Love has like basically so many different trigger warnings
0: let's just say trigger warnings for sexual abuse assault incest infertility
1: yeah rape and then the conflation of rape as like being a mutual mm-hmm. sin
0: also spiritual abuse within within sexual abuse yes. mm-hmm. um and so yeah i'm like i don't i can't think of anything less romantic than watching a movie about childhood sexual abuse right <laughs> that just that doesn't that, I mean, it's really important, but that does not give me like, oh, I want to just go like, you know, this feels really happy. Anyway, every time we come back to this book, it really reminds me that the church is really far. We'll say it's very far behind on uh-huh. being trauma informed and trauma informed care is this general idea Of um, It can mean a lot of things. Um, A lot of social work organizations are using this, which is just the assumption that if you come in the doors, we're going to assume that you have some trauma of some kind. And so we're going to accommodate and try to create safety. But the other way that trauma-informed care works is we don't ask what's wrong with you. We ask what happened to you. We say, the reason that you're doing this is because this is how you've had to learn how to survive. And it might not look like the right thing to do here in this setting um, or in like a middle-class white context, right? But there's really good reasons that you're doing what you're doing. As opposed to, historically, what we've done is said, like, there's something wrong with this person's character, Mm -hmm. right?
1: That's what the book does.
0: Exactly. That's exactly what the book does. Even though the book tells this whole story of all the terrible things that have happened, it still gets framed as the choices she makes is because she's sinful and broken. Right. And um, it just really breaks my heart, and and it really makes me think about in the church, you know, so much focus of sin is put on people that are that are dealing with trauma. So when I think about the things that the church has tended to focus on and demonize, would be things like sexual activity outside of marriage, mm-hmm. drunkenness, drug use, which isn't actually something that's in scripture. Those are often ways that people are coping with trauma, and in the Bible, I am like it talks so much about wealth and power and people Mm -hmm. that misuse power. And I just, it really struck me that the church focuses so much on these behaviors that are more likely to happen if you have experienced trauma and less likely to focus on calling out the people that hold power.
1: Yeah, I think that's really important. And Debbie really points out how redeeming love basically is about the worst Thing you can do as a woman,
0: mm-hmm. and I'll
1: I'll say that you know for the interview for you to listen to, but it's very chilling in a way to see. Uh-huh. That's what evangelicalism is focused on, right? Is the worst sin is a uh, uh, female sexual activity, right? So, woo. I mean, I can't go down this rabbit hole right now, Kristen. I can't go deep.
0: Okay, so then let's switch gears. Okay, I am preparing for an upcoming episode about the romantic quote unquote books I read, mm-hmm. which is. Some Joshua Harris, so I'm reading I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Yeah,
1: let's call it like the anti-dating books, yes. right? Yes,
0: uh-huh, right, yeah. Um, Boy Meets Girl, Hello to Courtship. Oh,
1: jeez.
0: Because <laughs> you say goodbye to dating, hello to courtship. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Eric and Leslie Ludy wrote a book called When God Writes Your Love Story that I especially love. I feel
1: like that book has like a cult following. Like yeah. not everybody's heard of it, but if you've read it. You either love it or it's just scarred you for life.
0: Exactly, right, right yeah. yeah. And right at the beginning, Eric Lutie says, you know, I came to this conviction that I'm only going to date the person that God has told me I'm going to marry.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Which feels so much like redeeming love, right? Because that means that you have to discern before you've even dated someone uh-huh. that God is saying, this is the person I have chosen yeah, for Yeah, all of you. this is
1: very normalized for me. It's like, yeah, that's how everybody... <laughs> goes through life
0: Uh uh-huh you like discern beforehand now i'm like
1: that's bonkers talk you know uh what i mean like
0: i mean let me tell you i i had an experience like this okay and i got me i gotta tell you it was not you it was before i even met you i went on a mission trip um and we went to montana because you know they need missionaries in montana we did that classic mission trip thing where you like plan something and it's actually like totally the worst outsider thing to do we plan this special camp out for like kids in the area no. but it turns out everybody was like why are you going camping that is like the height of the tick season uh-huh. and so i spent all night up feeling like ticks were on me okay woke up at like 3 a.m went on this two hour long prayer walk sleep deprived and god clearly of told your me your own volition yes I was just like, I'm up, I'm going, I'm going to watch the sunrise.
1: Okay, God told you. And
0: God told me uh-huh. that I, I was going to marry this girl that was on the trip with us.
1: It was like sleep-deprived hormones, maybe, am, talking.
0: Am, am I outside the will of God because I married you instead? Yeah,
1: it's so true.
0: <laughs> so bringing that back around in Redeeming Love, this is what happens, is that Michael Hosea hears a word from God and says, this is the woman you're going to marry. Yeah. I, I was wondering, do you feel like there are people in your life, like past life, that uh-huh. felt like God told them they were going to marry you?
1: Yes, 100%. What's
0: it like to be on the other side of that?
1: Ooh, Well, for me, it was no big deal. I was just like, you heard wrong. <laughs> Sorry. Like, I uh-huh. have no problem. Because mm-hmm. here's the deal. I was in that really weird, like, very intense religious group. Of people who want to be missionaries or whatever and so if there's any guy that is like into that world and he he was like this girl's very cute very manic pixie dream girl which as we all know is just code for autistic um <laughs> then he would be very into me and i would be like you repel me with everything in my body like i can't <laughs> they all smelled bad i've told you this before uh-huh. they smelled like so scared sweat, because they were all scared out of their minds by me.
0: You were scary. I am scary. But, like, so
1: cute and quirky and uh-huh, scary.
0: yeah, right.
1: Um, Yeah, so I had no problem doing that. And I don't think God ever told me that. I just felt like I knew I was going to marry you, mm. like, very early on. Because mm. I was like, I've never wanted to be with anybody, and I want to be with this person, so this is it. Mm-hmm. And it worked out great for me, so hmm god writes your love story work for me (laughs) okay we're getting into the weeds here chris Um, i'm very excited
0: about that upcoming episode there's a lot we're gonna talk about um but it also it was like yeah okay so he had this experience of of saying god's gonna tell you who to marry in 1991 uh uh-huh i think
1: that's when he wrote the book
0: no. That's when he met his wife. Uh huh. Okay. That was when he had this experience, which okay. is the same year that Redeeming Love came out.
1: Whoa! Pew, pew, pew. <laughs> <I don't laughs> but know anyway. Why I did shots, fire, and sound. <laughs> and before we dive into the interview, me and Kristen want to jump in really quick and say we are going to be co hosting a fellowship cohort for the Faith and Justice Network um, that starts in the fall. And it's like $900 for an entire nine months of really intense curriculum, but uh, we'll be meeting with a very small group of people twice a month that go through this amazing curriculum put together by the Faith and Justice Network. We just are bad at sharing about it, but we're very excited. And our cohort is specifically about deconstructing white evangelicalism. So if you grew up in white evangelicalism and you want to be reading these amazing books and hearing from these amazing speakers, and then also have a group of people to kind of deconstruct through your lens of your particular background with. We're doing that! Yeah. And we thought so, if you're listening to this podcast, you might be into that. So. Right,
0: yeah. We're facilitating this the small group portion of it, but the Faith and Justice Network, all together, we all go through the same curriculum, and it is amazing theologians. Oh my um, gosh. It's a very diverse group of uh, mostly people of color, uh, queer Christians that get to share with us. Um, and then the reading, we do, you know, read a, a handful of books um, that are specially and chosen. And these books
1: are like no joke. So you kind of do need a group of people to read it with. And that's going to be us. So, yeah.
0: yeah. So this is basically, um, it's it's sort of like on the ground seminary. Yeah,
1: seminary for the rest of us. Because $900 is a lot of money, but it's not really a lot when you think about seminary. <laughs> right. And you can also actually take it for seminary credit mm-hmm. for seminary. Uh, a little bit extra. So anyways, right, yeah. it's legit. Mm-hmm. It's intense. It's incredible. I like so few things in the world, and I love the Faith and Justice Network, and I love the people leading it. So yeah.
0: Yeah, it's really There great.
1: we go. We'll, we'll link all that info in the show notes. Um We love Debbie. Go follow her. Go listen to her podcast. You can stop listening to ours and listen to hers. We don't care. That's so much. We love her. It's called Where Do We Go From Here? You can find it anywhere. Yeah, but let's get on to my interview with Debbie Abraham. So I'm so excited. I'm talking to Debbie Abraham and I have, you know, been following your work on social media for a while. Uh, You have a, a pretty incredible podcast, which is about deconstructing purity culture but why don't you introduce people uh to who you are and i'm i'm so excited because i'm actually talking to you and you're in australia i'm in portland oregon this is fun yeah i'm like crossing
2: the divide i'm in the future i'm on a very hot day danielle is cold with her that looks like a mug of tea Uh, yeah and yes so we're in polar opposite literally polar opposite Mm -hmm. of life circumstances right now. But yeah, I am, well, what, what can we say? I'm turning 40 in a couple of weeks. I am Sri Lankan born. I grew up in the Philippines and in Northwest Arkansas as a missionary kid, hence the sort of deeply entrenched life in white evangelicalism, which is, Mm -hmm. I think, part of the reason for my interest in purity culture was just kind of trying to understand my own upbringing Um, myself uh, as someone who was a foreigner inside that setting. Um, But yeah, I moved to Australia as an adult and then I traveled around the world, which is how I met my husband. Um, And so we lived in Switzerland and Sweden. And then moved to Australia permanently, as permanently, I guess, as anyone can be, in 2015. So, um, yeah, I'm a writer, uh, studied journalism and history at at a Christian university in Northwest Arkansas. So, you know, did the whole, did all of the the Christian yards, the evangelical yards, I should say. And, uh, yeah, so the podcast is about um, kind of what comes next after purity culture. But obviously, we spend a lot of time talking about purity culture itself and what made it uh, so toxic, but also hopefully trying to understand things about purity culture that are not as overt as say, I kiss dating goodbye or true love waits and the promise rings and all of that. There's a lot more going on, I think, than just those things. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's an introduction. No, I love it
1: because one <clears> of the <throat> things that I, I wonder if other people feel this way too. It's, it's like, it's really hard for me to engage with some of these, topics around purity culture, because, uh, you know, I obviously grew up in the thick of it as well, but I experienced yeah. it a little differently than other people seem to. And so I've actually um, struggled a bit with, like, if if a group of gals who grew up in evangelicalism get together, and you're in your 30s, right? At some yeah. point, you might start talking about ica stating goodbye. Right? Yeah. And so when everybody tells their horror stories, I'm just like sitting there silent. I was like, I read that book and I was like, yeah, I'm going to be a missionary and none of these dudes like can measure up. Right. So like, I'm not <laughs> dating any of these jokesters and I literally never dated, never anything. And it saved me from a lot of creeps. Yeah. A lot of creeps, a lot of creeps were into me and I was just like, no, no.
2: Yeah. And and I think in, in the same, in a similar vein, Danielle, I I can't say that a lot of my purity culture um, related life things were so much around dating and romance i think i followed all the rules i married the first man i dated i really can't say i have regrets actually i i don't where i would say purity culture had a real impact on me has more to do with my body and Mm -hmm. and just the the experience of being female in the evangelical church in relation to other men um, the sort of hyper vigilance about like how long have I been talking to this guy? Is his wife nervous? Am I, you know, it's that kind of thing. Um, But I think there's, and that's what I mean, but there's so much more to purity culture than just mm-hmm. the, the drama around dating and sex. There's a lot of other things going on. And I think for, for many of us, we intersect with it at different points, you know,
1: yeah, I'm glad you said that because I just have always felt a little bit like, oh my gosh, did I benefit from this thing that's been so toxic to other people? Cause uh Crispin is the only person I ever dated. You know, right. the only person I've ever been in a relationship with it. I'm super duper happy. So I'm like yeah. So there's so much nuance. And so that's why I love the work that you're doing on your podcast, the conversations you're having, because I'm like, I feel like there's room for more people to just kind of sit, yeah. and listen, and figure some stuff out. And, and here's the thing, Debbie: I really hope that you can give me your thoughts on this when you discuss things like purity culture, or if we're going to talk about redeeming love, which right. we are going to talk right. about <laughs> redeeming love, the book by Francine Rivers. And when you talk about something that like primarily impacts women or is about women, I almost just like critiquing Francine Rivers kind of leads to this: like, should we critique? romance as a genre. Right. How do we even begin to start these conversations when I just feel like all of this is, seems like bad news for women and I don't want to add any more bad news to the pile.
2: To your question, to your point about women and um, critiquing the things that women love. One thing I've learned in the last two weeks of really thinking about redeeming love and asking people what they thought I would say I've probably had more positive feedback about redeeming love than negative. Yeah. Um, or let's just say it's, very, it's a very close split. Um, but by and large, for the women, their, their response to it when they read it, so not now, but when they first read it, was like, I've never experienced God's love like this before. This is the thing that showed me how much God loves me. This is the, you know, I I read this book and I felt God's love for me. And it was about that. And and I think, I mean, look, I no, see, no secret, no spoiler here. I am not a fan of the book. I think not only do I think uh, I don't, I don't just not like it. I think it's deeply problematic on so many different levels, including the spiritual level. But what do you do when somebody tells you this was the avenue to which uh, they, through which they experience God's love? I, I can't argue with that. I'm not going to argue with that, and I can't. I'm not going to stomp on it either, you know. And I mean, there are things I have. I have some theories, and I, I hope people will be willing to hear them. Absolutely, but uh, I, I don't want to just stomp on somebody's experience of this book. Or even the romance genre. I mean, I think, you know, you have Jane Austen writing romance, essentially, even though I think there's so much more to her stories than that. But the genre itself contains multitudes, you know.
1: Now, you are telling me, and I've also seen this across, like, multiple studies of, like, especially Christian women, their reading habits. Right. They like to read for devotional purposes. Right. Right. They like to get, they like to feel close to God. Even in their romance books. Yeah. Okay. So you're saying that people have told you that's how they've experienced these books. And I also got a few of those stories, too. And I wasn't even, like, trying to get people's stories. I was just posting, like, uh, you know, the image of the cover of the book Redeeming Love. And stories <laughs> just poured into my DMs. And mo- and some of them knocked me on my butt in a really bad way. Right. Just. Met multiple stories of people saying I was in an abusive marriage when I told my church, they gave me this book to read, wow. you know, like okay. stuff like that. Right. There were some of those that were like, when I was in my darkest place, addicted to drugs, like I read this book and, you know.
2: Well, one of the comments I received from someone was, um, we were being told by our leaders, moms, grandmas, pastors, even to read this book. While at the same time, we're hearing this message in church about our sexuality, which is dress up, cover up, don't think, you know, it was the the generation of like, don't just, don't just um kiss your boyfriend or have sex or whatever. It's not just that. It's what you're thinking about. It's also mm-hmm. the condition of your heart. So if you're fantasizing, you're also sitting. So you're handing people this book. And you're saying, you know, so this is, I mean, I don't know how we did it, frankly. I don't. And I did it. Uh, I read this in high school, uh, although it was not nearly as impactful for me, actually, as some of the other Christian novels.
1: Me too. The completion in this book of women saying, you know, it really drew me to love of God. But then like the unsaid thing is like, and it's a really sexy book. And so I think... One thing, obviously, a lot of people told me is like, well, it's just such a beautiful allegory of the book of Hosea. I was like, the book of Hosea is not sexy.
2: No. In fact, I went through and I counted the verses. So there's 196 verses in Hosea. Ten of them are the story of Hosea and Gomer. There's no mention of them outside of those ten verses, mm-hmm. and there's no mention of like what kind of husband Hosea is. He could have been a horrible husband. I mean, like, or let's just assume an ordinary. Like he's just ordinary. But what is it that evangelical women gravitate to? She's done the thing you can't do. She's left a good man. She's left a godly man in air quotes. We don't obviously know um, to go sleep with other men. You can't do that if you're an ev- evangelical woman. And what does he do? He takes her back. Wow, what a hero, right? That's really that's really the story in the book of Hosea. You can't take anything else out of it as far as what kind of man he is, how he treats her, what their family life was like. There's nothing else you can take out of it. Um, I think I could go... Uh, I could go one of two. So there's something interesting about the romance novel industry. 81% of, that, of uh, consumers are white women. They're white. Yeah. Oh. Mm, mm. So that's also, that's another little interesting tidbit for me that there is a, yeah. And I think that is across the board, not specific to Christian, uh, to Christian, non, uh, sorry, Christian fiction. Christian That romance. is shocking to me,
1: honestly. Because I, I actually have never looked up sort of the racial divide of who reads romance novels. Um, I will say uh, for this season that I'm doing, um, I would say Christian... Romance has got to be the whitest subcategory. Oh yeah. oh, yeah, there's no way. I mean, that's <laughs> the, the Amish is their whole, you know, how they get to be so white supremacists. Like, yeah. just like, we just write about Amish. Sorry, that's yeah. just what we do. So, so, it's, so
2: it's Nielsen Bookscan. So it found in 2015. So romance novels make up 29% of all fiction sales. 84% of readers are female, 16% male. Well over 50% are between 18 and 44 years old. 81% are white. <gasps> yeah. Okay, so,
1: that's, that's interesting.
2: I think so. Well, it says something about the amount of leisure time, certainly, um, and, and all of that stuff. So I have a few theories about why white women in particular read this book and uh, and it drew them closer to God. I, I do think that there's something about experience of purity culture, but beyond purity culture, the experience of being in church and being told that the greatest mistake you can ever make in your life is sexual sin. Mm. And even though we might not have been explicitly told that that was implied in absolutely everything, absolutely everything. In fact, I would still say even today, if you go to a church, they're going to, people are going to tell you what's the one thing you can't do this is the one thing you can't do. You cannot have sex. Um, so all that to say, if that's what you believe happens, I think we internalize that message, even for those of us who didn't have sex or who didn't date or who didn't whatever. And I think a lot of these women who I I definitely got messages from women for whom it was like, this was my experience I was promiscuous or I was sexually active and I felt like I could never be forgiven. And I read this book and I realized I could, but a lot of the women I hear from as well, were like good Christian girls who just love this story. And, and I think there's something about seeing a woman in a situation that you dread to be in, that you never want to be in ever. And she gets the best guy in the land. Cause it's not just about her really. Like the reason why this story was so captivating to Christian women is because of Michael Hosea. Like he's the reason it's captivating is they wanted their husbands to talk to him, them like this. So, so I think this is kind of the, the theory I've built in my head is mm-hmm. my mom never read this book, but my mother's generation of women, Francine Rivers published. The first edition was 1991. Um, published in a secular publishing house. I don't know if you knew that she published, she she wrote it for her non-Christian audience. So she was a romance writer. She was a romance novelist. Uh, She had sold over 3 million books of kind of the racy erotica type novels. She became a Christian, stops writing for three years. And this is kind of what she says. This is my statement of faith. That's what she says. And she wanted to write it for a secular audience. So she wrote it for her secular audience no conversion scene, no baptism, little bit of swearing, and it was racier. Um, and then she pulled it from there and then republished it in 97, Tyndale Multnomah-type situation. So when when Christian um, women, uh, I think when they read this book, so 97, you you have basically the act of marriage Maybe the first edition of Love and Respect, but you have all the typical instruction of like, do this for your husband, be this way, uh, all of these different things, and you will have a happy marriage. I have a feeling there were a lot of unhappy moms reading this book who got a real thrill out of it and who just read it and went, I wish my husband was like this, but he's not, but Jesus is like this for me. And Jesus is going to love me like this forever. And here, daughter, you should read it too, because Jesus is the perfect husband. That's my theory. And I hope when I say that it's not stomping on anyone's experience, but.
1: Oh, yeah, I I need help. I need help understanding it. And I think the way you explain it makes sense. It's still just a little bit like, you know, stepping one foot out of the culture, it's still so weird. Like there's just no way around how weird it is. And I had the experience of growing up pastor's kid. I'm sure my parents gave this book to people in struggling marriages. I heard all the things, you know, as soul ties with people, all this stuff. But I think you're right. Like in this book, it's not quite the same as, as other Christian romance I've read, which is, you know, if, a woman has sex with somebody else. So yeah, like pieces of her soul are just gone. Disintegrated. And, yeah. And they don't talk like that in redeeming love. Um, yeah. the thing that is annoying is how they conflate, uh, angel engaging in sex work with her choosing sin which is so ridiculous to me um that's what really bothered me but there's not all of that like she's a horrible person and she will now die for her sins which is maybe what you're saying evangelical women had to look forward to in these narratives so that's why this was received as good
2: yeah i i don't know i i wonder so yeah. I mean, I, I did hear from one woman who she's, I think in her sixties or seventies now, and she, she was like, I loved it. And then she read Felicia Masonheimer's post mm-hmm. about it and was like, oh, I don't remember any of this stuff. Now it makes me reconsider. And her comment to me was basically something along the lines of, we just didn't think about this stuff. We just thought it was a good book. We thought it was a good book about God's love. And well, But that's
1: like confusing. It's confusing to me. Like if you're a Christian, like I was, very sheltered. Yes. Then I remember I read this book as a teenager and I was like, yeah, it was really long. It was really boring. And there was a lot of sexy <laughs> stuff, like more sexy stuff that I have ever been exposed to in my young life. And then uh, my mom did work at Maluma Publishing actually later in life during high school. And they had some kind of racy books too. And I read those. And I was like, and finally, when I was like 50 years old, I was like, mom, I don't want to read these anymore. Stop bringing
2: them home. Like right.
1: they're, too, too racy for me. Yeah. So I was that kind of kid, um, that kind of teenager. Yeah,
2: no, absolutely. So I read romance novels, I want to say grade eight, grade nine, maybe grade 10. And then I was like, this is causing me to sin. And I didn't read a novel from that point until in university, I picked up Poisonwood Bible. So I read, that was the first novel I read that was like, I would consider a real novel. And then, and then I just didn't read at all until really just the last five years I've been reading novels again. Because of this sense of I don't want to sin, uh,
1: because and this, of and this, yeah, and this that's so fascinating. Yeah. I just never, I never experienced it like that. I just was like, oh, this is too, too much for me. But it was it's exactly the same way I'd feel about watching a movie or something. Yeah. Oh you know, yeah. Just that sense of like, yeah. Oh my gosh, this is so intimate. Yeah. But I'm also the kind of person where like Pixar movies are a bit much for me. Oh, just emotionally. Okay. I'm a highly sensitive, sensitive person yeah. all across, all across yeah. the board yeah. and yeah. violence, sex, all of it. Yeah. So I'm like, uh, yeah, I, I have a hard time with fiction too. Cause I, you can't always know what you're getting into. Yeah. That kind of... But when I read these posts, like, um, you know, the odd, venn diagram overlap of me and conservative women yeah in redeeming love right now as they're saying don't watch it because it's, <laughs> it's too sexy and yeah <laughs> it will cause you to stumble and i'm just like again i've been out of this world a little bit yeah but like with everything going on in the world is this like what we're talking to women about as if it's the most important thing is like you can't have any sort of sexy thoughts or can't have any sort of like enjoy watching this so i feel so confused because yeah. so, you know there's so much going on there but i'm like that's the thing y'all want to talk about and i know that you have a better you know you're able to see that they're critiquing other things to it but for me the thing that comes out the loudest is this is softcore porn and that's why you shouldn't
2: It is the thing that comes out the loudest. It is. It absolutely is the thing that comes out the loudest. And I think um, then, you know, it's an easy, it's an easy target because well, it's Hollywood. Well, it's, you know, we have to put this on a screen so like we can aim at our typical targets of why this is a problem. Um, But I think uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that people can't see the abuse issues in the book because it's not just, it's not just the miss. I mean, Francine Rivers does a good job in the one hand that she clearly labels rape as rape for what happens to Angel in her childhood. Um, and I'm, I'm glad she did that. That would have probably been a big deal for Christian publishers back then. Um, but I think the, the complete mislabeling of her life as a prostitute, she's not, she's not a sex worker even like to me, sex workers have an ability to go in and out. Like she couldn't leave. She couldn't get out. Every time she tried to escape her life, she got beaten up the the last time nearly dead. Like that's not a prostitute. Like that's not a sex worker, right? That's somebody who can't get out. And I, 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 I mean, whatever we believe about God, and I'm sure we all believe different things like what kind of God is going to look on a woman who can't get out and does whatever she has to do to cope within that environment and say this is sin? That's there's nothing about that that is, um, that parallels the Hosea Gomer story. There's nothing about that that we would today say. I hope we wouldn't say that this is anything related to sin, you know. So I, to me, that is really like why why were evangelical women so Willing to read this and ascribe sinfulness to her when she's not, and then you know there are so many other problems. I mean, like the the Paul subplot. I actually almost think that is even worse than everything else because when when she runs away from Michael for the first time, she ends up. Um, Paul gives her a ride. Paul is Michael's brother-in-law. He knows that she's a prostitute because he worked on the mines as well. Should I be saying prostitute or sex worker? What are we... Well, see, it,
1: I, now I'm confused. I think you made an excellent point for like why she wasn't actually a sex worker. Also, the book uses the word prostitute a bunch. Right. So I'm totally open to getting feedback from other people, but just for the sake of this discussion, like that's what she's called in the movie. Right. In the book, right. And-
2: yeah, so we'll use the word prostitute. Okay, right. And um, And Paul just sort of... He he knows exactly who she is the first time he meets her as Michael's wife. He knows that she's the most high-priced prostitute in in the town. Um, He was never able to afford to see her when he was a minor, even though I think he wanted to. And he thinks Michael is a perfect man. And he just hates Angel, like hates her from the get-go. And just sort of digs at her, keeps reminding her of her former life and and really wears down her confidence. Like he's abusive, actually. Just flat out abusive toward her. Um, and he's going into town. And she decides he's she, this is the right time to get away from Michael. I want to go back and get my money from the Duchess. Because I want to go buy my own cottage. I want to have my own life. What does she want? She wants freedom. That's the reason. Not because she wants to become a prostitute again. She just wants her money. Like she wants the money that she's but owed. She wants
1: to be alone. And right. not be dependent on a weird man that married her when she was unconscious. Uh,
2: Seems reasonable when you really think about it,
1: you know, but he refuses to bring her back into town. And so she hitches a ride with his brother-in-law
2: Paul. Right. And Paul says to her at some point he gets really angry. And then he says, "Um, you need to pay me for this ride. And basically his expectation is sex. And what if, if you read it, the scene, it is not consensual she is not willingly prostituting herself in this situation. He is raping her. Like that's what's happening. And it is treated throughout the whole book, uh, like, well, she feels like it's wholly her mistake. Michael makes it clear to her it's both of their mistake that he forgives them. And Paul believes that it's both of their mistake by the end. And he's kind of the agent of redemption at the end that you know, where it's like, I'm sorry, no, I'm sorry. And he's the one who brings her back home to Michael. And and that is just such an egregious ah! yeah. It's just it's horrifying. I, ah! I found I found the whole thing, that whole plot line. And it's it's I would call it the B plot because it's uh, horrifying. It, That's kind
1: of where yeah. I tapped out. I'm sorry, Debbie. I did not I did not finish this.
2: No, I mean, why should
1: you? <laughs> I did read like over you know 300 pages of it, yeah which is a
2: lot it's a it's a, it's a lot of pain but the Paul
1: <laughs> the Paul supply I was like screaming yeah. at the book like, yeah this is rape like stop it stop it yeah and I also wrote several choice f-words to yeah. Michael because you know yeah everybody's like oh it's such a dreamy romance I'm like he is yeah not good he like says he if he started hitting her like he wouldn't stop right? Yeah. Until she was dead. He felt like like killing her. He
2: felt like killing her, which this is where like as evangelical women, you'll be reading it going, yeah, of course, because she's done the one thing you're not supposed to do. Right. So this is where the book hits all of our pressure points, I think. And it hits all of the, yeah. Anyway.
1: But I just think it's sad. Like the romanticization (laughs) of Michael is just really, really hard for me. Yeah. And I didn't read the end of the book, but I'm assuming he's still the hero. But I had read enough where I was like, well, he could never be a hero. Like, yeah. Debbie, I mean, what do you make of like the f- the whole thing? I know it's supposed to be like sexy. It's like he really wants to have sex with her. He's like so sexually attracted to her. But he holds <laughs> off, right, until he doesn't. And then he makes her say his name. Like while they're having sex, he makes her. He like demands, makes her, and look, look him in the eyes and say his name. And I'm just like, how is this not sexual assault? Like, how, how is this not like? I don't know what to do with that. Like, I couldn't. I can't come back from that as a reader. But that's like. Yeah, in the first
2: one one third of the book yeah, yeah, so keeps going. You know? Yeah, yeah. Ah, oh, man. I I I'm not sure that I read that as an assault situation, but I think I can understand how women in that marital situation absolutely would, and it would be tragic and horrible. Um, because I think, in some ways, the fact that Michael is looking for a consensual sexual relationship um, is admirable in particular for that generation, right? Like, so literally for the historical context, it would be, I mean, I don't think the idea of consent doesn't exist in that time period. Right. Like I don't think it does. Um, so I think we can ask, we need to look for it as a reader, but I think if we're looking at like historical accuracy, it's not necessarily supposed to be there. And so it's, um, it is on the one hand, it's remarkable. And I think this is why Christian women loved it <laughs> that he's looking for this kind of thing, but, but it's very disturbing at the same time. Like that seems so like he's a-
1: trying to, t- he's trying to demand consent is what you're saying. Something. You I don't, I, okay.
2: Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't even know. Like I, but I found the fact that he was, he kept asking. So it's kind of, is he demanding it? Is he asking nicely? Is he, you know, like, this is where we could get into kind of, I don't really know what's happening. I, I yeah, but it's, it's a hard, I think it's a hard scene. It's a hard scene to read. Um, I, for me, what is probably more interesting about the sexual uh, relationship between Michael and Angel is the way it is a vehicle for redemption in the book. So this is this is the thing with with this novel sex is not just because it's a romance novel for women sex is actively part of angel's redemption and her ability to have sex with her husband willingly happily whatever is seen as an active sign of redemption oh. right she's oh. softening she's she's you're my love she's you're softening. Softening. <laughs> sorry sorry <laughs> like she's it, no 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 like it, he meant like what i meant by- <laughs> I know, but it's just, it's just, <laughs> like what, Yeah. So what I mean by that is just that, that he, he feels like her walls are coming down. That's one of his big things, right? Like you've got these walls, a woman is a wall and a door. Oh, what does that even mean? I don't. Yeah. Oh so, anyway. So she's got all these walls, her walls are coming down. Um, and that, I, I find that so bizarre and yet, and yet so totally white evangelical. That that sex is going to be like sex is her big sin. Sex is the avenue for redemption.
1: It, I just don't get it. Yeah. I, how many times am I going to say this? <laughs> this. <laughs> it's just so fascinating. I know there's something going on, but I'm like, I don't get it. But it, like, it sold what seven million copies. Like, this means A lot. something to people. It, people, other people got it, and I didn't and so i guess i'm just trying to figure that out in a way um but yeah. it it does not there's so many elements that do not hold up yeah and i do think it's it's hard for us to kind of think back like yeah why did we all just yeah. receive it as this is totally normal Christian stuff. Here, yeah. Just totally normal. Um, it's just depressing.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think even, even our affection for the Hosea story says, instead of seeing it as a story about a collective issue with a collective people, the way we individualize it and make it just like, oh my gosh, a man took an adulterous woman back as his wife. What a hero he is. That says something about our beliefs about sexuality and marriage. Uh, alone that alone that we see it as this individualistic story about a husband and wife when it's really a, a huge story about collective failing and collective failing that destroyed an entire society and god's love reaching out to that and renewing that right like yeah. that's yeah, yeah so
1: I, i'm going to be i'm going to be talking to some people who understand like the genre of romance better than i do but i've always struggled with historical romance in general because it's like life sucked for women i don't know how to get over that it just (laughs) did and so i don't think you can romanticize the bible like the most free i had the most freeing moment a few years ago when i was like there's not a single marriage in the bible i would i would want to be in not a single one yeah. You know, or I family would want to be, as a child. I want to be Martha because Martha never <laughs> is, you know, she, I don't know if she has a husband or kids. She's just Martha. And she gets to like right. be intense to Jesus, you know, and, yeah. and all that. So I'm like, I could do that, but there's not a single biblical marriage I want. And to be able to be honest and say that. So I, I feel the same way about this freaking book. That is not a marriage I would want to be in. No.
2: For me, the question really is why did a generation of evangelical women need to feel like um, a prostitute who was sexually abused, who had a totally traumatized life? Why did we need to put ourselves in her shoes to feel God's love? Why is that the, that's my question. I I would say if you really, if you are somebody who needs to feel the love of God, that is something worth exploring. Like that, that idea is worth exploring. You should buy Kristen Mayfield's book. (laughs) My, I'm not even like nobody's put me up to say that. It was one of the best books I read last year. And I, I swear like that book is going to do a lot more for your relationship with God than Redeeming Love is. I was listening to a Francine Rivers interview, a podcast interview. And she one of the things she said is she got tons of letters from women who were abused or coming out of uh, sex work and um, how they gave her hope. She got tons of emails from therapists who use this book with clients. Which was kind of a, wow. So,
1: yeah. I guess I'm not going to talk on that, but that's that's some heavy stuff. Yeah. It's not a therapeutic book. It is not Um, the Bible. I do not know if Francine Rivers, she does not seem trauma-informed. And um, the book has also been used to expect women um, to receive abuse um, and to call it godly. And so I think that's kind of where I still end up landing just because I've seen those messages. And um, again, if something's been used to harm somebody, like you have to reckon with it. And, and from what I've heard, when Francine Rivers has been told, you know, about the problematic element, she's just like, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's so good. And I'm like, that's somebody who's not been listening then because there's been many, many people who tried to, yeah. To
2: tell her that, so. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And I, I do think like she's a product of her time, like '90s evangelicalism. So she, if this was published in '91, so she must have written it '89, '90. So she became a Christian in the years in the '80s. So mm. I mean, I can only imagine the kind of Christian stuff she ingested. It was all the stuff we're trying to recover from now. So yeah. some of us are trying to recover from now. So, yeah. And in
1: 2022. Yeah, we're
2: still here. It
1: still has life. <laughs> well debbie thank you so much for talking to me about this i just you know wanted an excuse to chat with you and and now um i almost feel like we've survived a war together yeah that's right we've we've been in the trenches i don't actually read a ton of fiction either so for me to spend my precious brain cells reading this book it was nice to know that you were also out there also doing the work doing the work you're, you're you're doing this for your podcast too so tell us really quick about um what you guys are going to be talking about. Are, are you going to be talking about this on your podcast? We are. Yeah, I think,
2: yeah, I think we'll be going into more detail about the problems in the book. And also I think for me, my interest in it is really how does a book like this even come about? So I'm interested in that. I'm interested in the question of why does it resonate with the audience that it resonates with? Cause I think that also points to very much the the purity culture stuff if you're primed to want to resonate with with this kind of story I think that's what I would say so yeah and then we've also got a lot of listener stories a variety variety Mm -hmm. of stories including from women who have been who were from an abused background or childhood and we've got both for those for For whom it was harmful and for those for whom it was beneficial and I think I mean that's always very interesting when you do when you have both. Um
1: Yeah, I do think just from from like a moral ethical obligation, like, you know, taking the pain seriously matters because we do tend to say, well, if there's two sides to this, I'm like, well then listen to the side that it was abusive to. Okay? Yeah. Like that's just that's just sort of where I'm at. Um I will I will say that uh you and your co hosts are just way farther ahead on talking about things related to purity culture deconstructing purity culture so i would i would tell anyone listening to this podcast please go check out debbie's podcast can you remind me of the name of it
2: yeah where do we go from here
1: there we go. Yeah. Okay. Where do we go from here? And your co-host name, Jessica Vendell.
2: Jessica Vander Weingard. Yeah. There we
1: go. There we go. And you'll get a touch of the the Aussie accent right. from her, which <laughs> I enjoy because my kids are obsessed with Bluey. So oh, just the like, best
2: show. The best show. We
1: talk about moving to Australia sometimes, but my daughter looked up. Um, a lot of poisonous animals that live there, so that so now a lot. that's off the table. So that's off the table for now. There, there are her. a lot.
2: Yeah, there are a lot, and a lot of spiders. If even exactly. non-poisonous spiders,
1: snakes but, and spiders. It's just like no, yeah. But maybe someday we'll have to go visit all you cool people. We would love Australia. to have
2: you. We'd love to have you. My gosh, yeah.
1: Yeah, so thank you so much for this. Go check out her podcast, Where Do We Go From Here? And uh, stay tuned for, for her discussions on Prancing Rivers.
0: This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram and send us emails at propheticimaginationstation at gmail.com. You can join our Patreon community for as little as fifty a month for more discussions of evangelical media and the occasional virtual hangout. You can find show notes and transcription of this episode at our website, propheticimaginationstation.com. If you've enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you left us a review on iTunes. And lastly, between the two of us, we've written a few books. You can find Danielle's latest book, Myth of the American Dream, and Crispin's book, Attached to God, wherever books are sold.